Hey, intellectual scholars, today's theme centers around three closely related concepts, locus of control, growth mindset, and control of learning beliefs. The first concept, locus of control, was developed in 1954 by Julian B. Rotter, who was a psychology professor at The Ohio State University and later the University of Connecticut. Locus of control refers to a person's belief in how much control they have over the outcomes in their life. Locus of control can be internal or external. Someone with a strong internal locus of control tends to believe that incidents in their life stem predominantly from their own actions. For example, the results of a high-scoring exam stem from their own effort or ability. In other words, they did well on an exam because they studied a lot, or they are just highly intelligent. On the other hand, the student may believe they did poorly on an exam because they didn't study enough. Someone with a strong external locus of control may be inclined to praise or blame external factors for their exam grade, such as the teacher was terrible, or the exam itself was too hard, or the exam was just too confusing. The second concept, growth mindset, was described in a 2006 book by Carol Dweck called Mindset, The New Psychology of Success. She was a psychology professor at Columbia University, Harvard University, the University of Illinois, and most recently, Stanford University. Dweck explains that mindsets can be described as a continuum between fixed mindsets and growth mindsets. Students with a fixed mindset believe that physical or mental abilities are predominantly constant or fixed and view the cause of their failures as the lack of essential proficiencies. They may give up on a difficult task quickly because they believe they don't have the required skills for success. They believe that they have a certain amount of intelligence and it can't change. Their goal may become to appear smart at all costs and not look dumb. They tend to avoid difficult problems and view a wrong answer as a failure. Students with a growth mindset believe that they can acquire about any new skill or ability if they invest enough time or effort into learning how to do it. They tend to choose more difficult problems to work on, if given the choice, and see wrong answers as an opportunity to learn. They also tend to persist much longer at a task than students with a fixed mindset and tend to be more successful. The third concept, control of learning beliefs, comes from a theory called self-regulated learning. This theory states that learning is guided by three things. One, metacognition, which is thinking about one's thinking. Two, strategic action, so planning, monitoring, and assessing advancement in skill level. And three, motivation, and there's lots of different types of motivation, which we'll address later in the series. It is believed that self-regulated learners are aware of their academic strengths and weaknesses. They have a selection of strategies they use to overcome typical academic tasks. They most likely believe intelligence can be gained, and it's not fixed. They also tend to attribute their success or failures to things within their control. To make a long story short, self-regulated learners believe that academic achievement will result from opportunities to take on difficult assignments, practicing new skills, acquiring a profound understanding of a topic, and putting effort into learning. They are successful because they control their learning environment. They apply this control by aligning their actions toward their learning goals and regulating their progress. To help us explore these topics further, I've invited Dr. Bob Midden to talk with us today. Dr. Midden is an associate professor of chemistry and the associate vice provost of experiential and innovative learning here at BGSU. 
He came to BGSU in 1987 to join a team of scientists building a new Ph.D. program in photochemical sciences and establishing BGSU as a national leader in photochemical sciences research. Since then, his research interests have shifted from bioorganic photochemistry to finding ways to reform education at all levels. The recipient of more than $18 million in grants from federal and state agencies and private foundations, he's led multiple intercollegiate teams and in efforts to improve K-12, as well as undergraduate and graduate instruction in the sciences, technology, engineering, and mathematics, or STEM fields. Dr. Midden was the director of the Chapman Learning Community, which was the first comprehensive residential learning community at BGSU. He developed alternative learning experiences and actively engaged students with projects serving the surrounding communities. He also spearheaded an initiative to integrate service learning into the undergraduate curriculum and to document the many ways in which faculty create such opportunities for their students. Dr. Midden was also the director of the Northwest Ohio Center for Excellence in STEM Education, or NWO, with the mission of advancing STEM education for people of all ages. NWO serves the 29 counties in the Northwest Quadrant of Ohio and involves partnerships with most of the higher education institutions, many K-12 districts, as well as numerous businesses and nonprofit organizations throughout the region. NWO provides a variety of services to the region, including K-12 and college faculty professional development, hosting annual symposia and student STEM competitions, administering multiple STEM college student scholarship programs, fostering the development of new learning science doctoral program, and sponsoring other events aimed at promoting interest and success in STEM disciplines. In addition to his work as NWO director, Dr. Bidden led a scientific research project investigating major issues threatening the environmental integrity and economic vitality of Lake Erie and other Ohio lakes, rivers, and streams. This project has involved more than 40 undergraduate and graduate students over the last five years and involves collaboration with several government agencies and scientists from throughout the region in addressing one of the most pressing environmental issues in Ohio. Bob is a colleague and good friend of mine. He helped me facilitate several learning communities and led many teaching and learning workshops. Bob has a strong internal locus of control, and he's someone who teaches me something new or presents a complicated concept with a fresh perspective every single time I talk to him. Please welcome Dr. Bob Midden. Welcome to the Teaching and Learning Professor, where you will find interviews of college faculty, staff, administrators, students, and alumni every week. Topics cover all aspects of formal and informal learning in higher education. The goal of this podcast is to help faculty understand the best ways to teach and for students to understand the best ways to learn. Your host is a teaching professor in the Department of Biological Sciences at Bowling Green State University. He's been faculty and the director of the BGSU Marine Lab since 1999. Now on to the show with your host, Dr. Matthew L. Parton. Welcome, Bob Midden. I uh, guess I want to start off by asking you if you could tell us a little bit about your educational background. I went to a Catholic school for grade school and high school and moved about every three months when I was in grade school up to grade seven. But it wasn't as bad as I think some people's experience have been for whatever reason. I was a a good student after second grade. First grade, I got in a lot of trouble, got 
thrown out of the classroom once or twice. <laughs> uh, but after that, uh, my second grade teacher showed me the way. <laughs> <laughs> it straightened you out. It huh? straightened me out. Straightened me right out. And I, well, pretty much. I, I did get in trouble in high school a little bit. But I was, I got really good grades in high school. I was a class valedictorian. And I always loved science from the time I was born, pretty much. I mean, my earliest memories are of studying nature. You know, I'd catch a honeybee and by the wings when it was on a clover and study its legs and wonder, how do you get the honey out of those little pockets on its, <laughs> on its legs and got stung a couple times uh, investigating a little too thoroughly? took a part of maple seed and found a little tree inside and wondered, well, can I get that tree to grow without the things around it? Or do I need, you know, some parts of it? And my favorite gifts were, had to do with science. So I'm, I'm really kind of a science nerd kind <laughs> of a guy all the way through. Uh, but on the other hand, I also did sports and, and high school, uh, played football, basketball, believe it or not, for a little while, cross country. And then I came from a family where nobody else had really gone to college. My dad had taken a couple college classes. I think after World War II, he was in the South Pacific during World War II. Uh, but nobody really knew anything about college. And it was a blue-collar town, and none of my friends really knew much about it. My best advice came from an 80-year-old guidance counselor, if you want to call it the best advice. And because I'd gotten in trouble a few times, um, she, I think she decided that the best place for me was a little college in the middle of Minnesota. And so that's where she <laughs> suggested I go. Maybe and she Frank, thought you couldn't get in trouble out there. Right. Well, you can get in trouble just about anywhere <laughs> you put your mind to it. So, but I I'm, I'm did okay. And uh, I majored in chemistry and minored in biology because... I got a full year of advanced placement credit in chemistry and only a half a year in biology. <laughs> and I didn't know what I, you know, I, I knew I liked all the sciences and uh, I actually liked biology a little better, I think. But the time there were better jobs available in chemistry and I got that full year's credit and figured, okay, I'll major in, in chemistry. But then I decided I, I, had pretty much known all along I was either going to go to med school or graduate school and kind of ended up going to graduate school by default. Still kept thinking about med school for quite a while. But anyway, went to graduate school in biochemistry so I could combine my interests in both of those areas and got a, I uh, finished my bachelor's degree in 74, uh, went to Ohio State, finished my PhD in biochemistry a little bit short of four years in 78, and then did uh, postdoctoral research for about a year. Went to Johns Hopkins University and took a position there initially as a postdoc, then research associate, then a faculty assistant professor, and was there when I got recruited away by Doug Neckers to help start here at BGSU to help start the new Center for Photochemical Sciences and the new PhD program. At Hopkins, I had been in uh, the Department of Environmental Health Sciences and helped start a new PhD program in environmental chemistry there. But so anyway, that's, uh, I came here in 1987, quite a ways before any of the students that are listening to this probably were born. <laughs> so I've been around for a while. So you've done a lot of studying over the years. I right? have. You, you, you obviously. So I would consider you a lifelong learner. 
For sure. And in, in, so in not only professionally in preparing yourself for your professional career, studying chemistry, which is a very difficult degree if, if uh, students are not aware of that. The way it's typically taught, yeah. So, so you have a, a PhD in chemistry, biochemistry, mm-hmm. and on top of that, you're, you just have many, many, many proficiencies. You're a musician, you're a photographer, and just a hundred other things that, <laughs> that, that you know how to do that, that you know, many people don't know how to do. I, I assume that you've spent lots of time teaching yourself how to do these various act, new activities all the time and improving the skills that you do have. And so I guess my question is, how do you prefer to learn? All right. Well, true confessions, it's not in the classroom. <laughs> Sorry. Lectures never really did much for me. I preferred to learn on my own. And I was really good at it. But I preferred to learn on my own for a purpose. Uh, and that's how I've directed almost all my learning. I've always had a goal in mind something I wanted to know or something I wanted to be able to do. And I searched until I could find a way to learn that and then devoted myself to learning it. I did that even in graduate school. I wrote, we had to write a proposal and I wrote a proposal on a topic that nobody else in my graduate program knew hardly anything about and just learned it on my own. But that was enjoyable for me. You know, I've always enjoyed learning. I think that might have been partly because I got praised for it early on by that second grade teacher, <laughs> not the first grade teacher. <laughs> and uh, I, I really enjoyed that. And I have learned uh, things that I, I initially thought it was going to be impossible for me to learn. You mentioned I'm a musician and I've learned to play multiple instruments. And there was a time when I thought, I could never really play very well. And now I perform regularly, you know, throughout the region. And it taught a lot of people to play. I, at one time, thought it would be impossible for me. I thought I had a learning disability for learning to play by ear, learning to improvise, learning uh, to memorize music. And now I can do all of those things very easily and even expertly. But I swear, initially, I thought I would never be able to do those things. I've learned a lot of things that, you know, initially seemed daunting and overwhelming and almost impossible. But I've learned repeatedly that with dedicated effort, setting clear goals, and finding good pathways, taking it one step at a time, that I can learn virtually anything. So how do you typically start out? So you decide, hey, I want to play the ukulele. So do you pick up an instrument, start tinkering around with it, or do you read everything you can about that topic first and then start trying to figure some chords, notes? I would pick up the instrument and try to get a feel for it, but I'd also watch what other people are doing and look for what I would call practical lessons. I would look for people who can show me how to play something fairly soon. doesn't have to be complicated, but I don't want to 
spend my time only doing exercises, only right. playing scales. I have learned there are times and circumstances where it's really beneficial to do that. But I find that it's also really important to learn to play something. So so it's important to find some success a little bit early on, right. even if it's a small success. Yes. Then you can see yourself, what, what you could become, because, hey, I can do this little thing. Hey, I, if I can do this little thing, I'm, I'm going to be able to do something great later on. In order to generate the energy and intensity you need to learn really well and effectively, you've got to have the motivation. And to get that motivation, I think you need some pleasure. And you get some pleasure when you feel you've accomplished something, and especially if it's something you feel is worthwhile. And if it's about mu playing a musical instrument, for example, it's worthwhile to be able to play something. And so, you know, if you set a goal to learn to play something simple, but something that you would like to be able to play, and then you accomplish that, you have the pleasure of that accomplishment. And that helps you generate the energy for the next step. And I think, so I think it's important to set clear and specific goals. But I think it's also important that those goals are set at an appropriate level. So you don't want goals that it's going to take you 10 years to achieve. You can have some goals like that, but you also need some uh, close goals and some intermediate goals. And those close goals are important for generating that right. motivation and energy. And so you can scaffold the learning mm -hmm. by achieving a little a certain level of a of success and then building on that and building right. on that right could you give some concrete examples on how this would apply to our soon-to-be chemistry students sure so quantum mechanics is a very complex subject and you can easily be overwhelmed with that complexity and so i think it's important to be able to figure out what it is you know and what you don't know and be able to try to dissect what's available so you can set a goal for something, some part of that, some simpler part of it that you can learn first and get that sense of accomplishment and then figure out what the appropriate next step is. Now, ideally, good instructors do that for you, and that's one of the benefits of having an instructor. But, you know, I mentioned I like to learn on my own. I didn't, I, I'm a very independent kind of person. I don't like to be told what to do, and so <laughs> probably to my detriment to some extent. But, you know, I would tend to feel like I knew I could figure that out for myself. But, you know, do figure that out one way or the other, having some guidance, probably some combination, and also on your own figuring out, well, what is it that it would be worthwhile to learn first? What is something that I can probably understand with a, a little bit of effort? And that will lead me then, will give me a building block on which I, I can base my future learning. Okay, yeah. I, w I would say that for myself, I also prefer to teach myself, or at least that's where I like to start and kind of teach myself as much as I can and find out as much as I can on my own. And then go to, you know, once I've got a list of questions like, hey, show me how to do this. I don't mm -hmm. know how to do that. Do you believe that's necessarily the best way to learn? Or do you think there is a best way to learn? It's the best way for me. 
it's worked really, really well. Having questions that I need to answer and sources of information that I can understand. When I was writing that proposal on the use of complex nuclear magnetic resonance spectroscopy to study the structure of transfer RNA, there were sources of information that I couldn't understand. And so I would set those aside and look for information that I could understand. So I think, you know, that's an important part of it, figuring out what works for you and what doesn't. There are times when it's worthwhile to take something that you can't do at all, struggle with it for a while, maybe set it aside and come back to it later, maybe struggle with it for a while and then find something that can get you partway there and then come back to it and try it again. So, you know, there are multiple pathways that I think are possible, but definitely for me, it's a matter of identifying questions, setting goals, uh, finding suitable sources of information or instruction or guidance, and then using that in order to accomplish those goals. You were an administrator for many years, mm-hmm. and but you still occasionally teach classes, mm-hmm. and you had one where you did a workshop at the beginning of the course dealing with growth mindset. Could you mm-hmm. tell us about that? Sure. I am a person that believes that people can learn anything and that intelligence is a flawed psychological concept. Uh, It's too complex. Human intelligence can involve lots of different kinds of mental or cognitive skills and processes and abilities. And I have seen vast improvements in my cognitive ability over the years when I've invested a certain amount of intense effort. And I want my students to be aware of that. And that's at the heart of growth mindset. I believed in that concept even before I ever encountered that term. I believed that you could get so-called smarter or increase your so-called intelligence. I just consider it acquiring new mental skills and new mental abilities. I do know that it requires intense mental effort. I do know that it's uncomfortable, especially in the beginning. I do know that it can be frustrating and difficult at times. But I also know that when I persist and when I endure that discomfort, when I invest the effort, despite the feeling that I would like to stop, that it pays off in the acquisition of new abilities and stronger capabilities, it's worth it in the end. There are times when it has felt like it wasn't going to be worth it. (laughs) There are times when I would have rather just given up. But when those cases where I didn't, I found it was really worthwhile. And I believe that is one of the keys to long-term success and achievement of one's goals, but also in having a, a a greater sense of personal, I would, I would call it peace and satisfaction. Because when you've overcome difficulty, when you've faced a challenge, and when you've persevered and done it even when it hurts and done it even when it doesn't feel good, and then come out on the other side successfully, that gives you a certain inner strength and inner satisfaction that is worthwhile for its own sake. 
but that can also then give you a greater motivation to try even harder things and to succeed even further. I believe that's really important for the students I've worked with to know, understand, appreciate, and use. And so that's why I did a session on growth mindset. When I learned about it, when I, what I found a benefit from that was that here were people who have studied that concept, tested it by trying different strategies, different experiences, different practices on real people, figuring out what seemed to work the best, and then offering that to others. And so I was able to benefit from what they had learned about it and apply that and use it with some of the students I was working with. I think it had some benefit. How did you present this concept to your students? I showed them evidence that uh, Carol Dweck and others had collected from studies they had conducted where they had engaged students in some experiences, giving them some information about how the mind works, giving them some examples where people had been able to improve their intelligence with dedicated effort and then inspired them to do that themselves and found that, in fact, then the students performed markedly better. And so I gave the students I was working with similar kinds of examples, showed them some data, and also engaged them in discussion of some of the examples that uh, were provided in the materials that I'd found. Cases where students had expressed lack of confidence and a lack of belief they could accomplish something, but then with appropriate direction, guidance, and effort, were able to do so. So I, I showed students some videos of cases like that, the data, the examples, had them discuss it among themselves. We discussed it as a whole class and then tried to put some of that into practice. And it, it, I'm sure everybody has had those kinds of experiences. If you learned how to roller skate or ice skate, very few people strap on a pair of skates and immediately go off and do pirouettes. <laughs> but I think anybody who has normal coordination and strength can eventually learn to do pirouettes and do them well. You know, and if you are willing to put in the dedicated time and effort, you can probably do them exceedingly well. And that, that's just one example. And the same is true of musical instruments. I, I've actually taught a number of people music and found, you know, the same thing to be true. As, and I believe that talent is more the desire to put in the effort to learn than it is anything truly inherent. If you see somebody who seems to be inherently good at something, I believe most likely, if you look back through their life, there were times when they devoted, even perhaps as a toddler or in, you know, at preschool ages or in grade school, where they had the predisposition and desire to try those things on their own until they got good at it, whether it's drawing, whether it's music, whether it's uh, reading, wh whatever it is. 
And they just went after they fell on their face. They just got, they got up and back did up it again and did it again and study and thought about it and figured out, well, why did I fall on my face? What can I do differently? So the next time I don't fall on my face, tried that. Maybe it didn't work because they weren't quite good enough at it yet, but they kept practicing until they were. And then they didn't fall on their face after that. So our students with the growth mindset would see that they, they fall on their face and they know that that's just part of the learning exactly. process and they're going to get up and keep doing it. They don't say, oh, I guess I can't do that. I'm never going to try that again. Instead, they think about it and say, well, why did I fall on my face? What can I do differently the next time? All right, try that. And even if they fall on their face again, study it again. Oh, that didn't work. Well, let's try this. And with persistence, I think you can accomplish virtually anything. There's so many examples of people who failed the first times they did. There are people who have gone bankrupt three or four times trying to start new businesses <laughs> and then ended up incredible successes. Right. Yeah. You know, there's so many ex examples of that. Why do you think it's important that students have this growth mindset? Because they can eventually learn so much more. If you don't believe that you can improve your intelligence, if you don't believe that intense effort can pay off by helping you learn things that initially seemed impossible, then your horizons are limited. You're, you're not going to really be able to achieve your true full potential because to achieve your true full potential, you have to be able to increase your ability. You have to be able to overcome the initial challenges. You have to be able to persist in the face of initial failure and believe that eventually you can achieve the things that are difficult. I have a multiple choice question for you. Okay. In your opinion, mm -hmm. is the purpose of a college education, is it to A, get a job, B, learn how to think and learn, or C, something to do while you figure out what to do with the rest of your life? It can be all of those, of course. I mean, I, you need to learn how to think and learn in order to get a good job and to be <laughs> successful at it. And if you don't know what you want to do, then one of the best ways to figure that out is to learn how to think and learn and try different things so you can figure out what the range of possibilities are so you can make a good choice and then get a good job. So, you know, those are all interrelated. And I wouldn't, you know, say any one of them is the sole purpose. Uh, they're all worthwhile and all relevant. You know, I'm still figuring out what I want to do. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've, I've known what I want to do at different times. But, you know, I've still been thinking about some of the things that are p possible and some of the things that I think it would be worthwhile to do. But in the meantime, I'm learning. I'm still learning. And I'm still growing. I'm still acquiring new skills. And I'm still uh, figuring out what I want to do. So, you know, that's not just college. <laughs> so I've got a, about 100 advisees every semester um, that are marine biology students. They would like to be a marine biologist someday. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, what advice do you have for those students? I would recommend that they explore as much as they can to learn about the vast range of possibilities. 
I would recommend they don't settle on the first thing they see. I would recommend that they try lots of different things. You know, college is a good time to do that. Once you graduate, and especially, you know, once you get a job and you have a family and you need to support the family or whatever, it becomes harder to do that exploration. So college is a really good time to explore. Uh, but it's also worthwhile to make sure that your learning is successful because this is also a really good opportunity to do a lot of really effective learning. Like it or not, the way our economic system works, you do have a distinct advantage with a college degree, and you can't get a college degree without a certain level of grades. And some jobs uh, are easier to get if you have certain grades. And so, you know, I think it's worthwhile to do what's necessary in order to get those grades. But along the way, there are lots of different things you can do to explore, uh, to uh, learn about the vast range of possibilities, to consider those, try some of those, and uh, keep an open mind about uh, where you might end up. I have one last question okay. for you. What recommendations do you have for new faculty, seasoned faculty, or administrators in incorporating growth mindset into their curriculum? Well, it'd be worthwhile to learn a bit about what's already known from people who have studied that concept and tested various uh, strategies for helping other people learn about it and appreciate it and, and be able to employ it and, and learn a little bit about how to uh, help their students become more aware of it. What, what's, what are the most effective teaching strategies? What are the most effective types of experiences? And then and try some of that out. You know, as with everything, uh, you don't always succeed on the first try, so they should also be aware that if things don't go as well as they hope the first time they try it, they shouldn't give up. That's just like everything else I've been saying, you know, uh, persistence is the key. So I, I would recommend, you know, that they learn about what's already available, what's already been learned, and how, a bit about how to apply it and uh, persist until they succeed. All right, great. Bob, thank you so very much for coming out here and talking with me today. You're welcome, and uh, thank you, Matt, for what you're doing to help students learn about the most effective ways to learn and to give them some inspiration and guidance. Thanks for listening to The Teaching and Learning Professor with Dr. Matthew L. Parton. If you like our show and want to know more, check out his webpage at blogs.bgsu.edu slash teachingandlearningprofessor. And please leave a review on iTunes, TuneIn, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you retrieve your podcasts.